0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: Swallow it, you take another gulp and another gulp. Ah, it is so refreshing. The dust washed away reinvigorated you can now smile and and talk freely again life has been restored to you you ever been thirsty like that we're familiar with that there is another kind of thirst that we fallen human beings are familiar with as well a spiritual thirst you ever known that your heart is dry and caked over with dust feels like it's gonna crack if it stretched just a little bit further you're filled with longing and desire and you're crying out in here for fulfillment and some sort of satisfaction but it just doesn't come, you can't find any there is water for that kind of thirst too new and better water not just physical water that satisfies a physical thirst for a time then will return but new and better spiritual water that satisfies that spiritual thirst in here right now and will one day satisfy it forever and those who drink of that water deeply that's what Jesus talked about with a woman by a well in ancient Samaria that's what our text is this morning it's a long text so I'm going to move immediately to it and read the whole thing And then as I walk back through it and explain different parts, it's going to take me a little longer than usual because it's so long. But I have to read it all together because it's one story. I'm going to do that as I move towards two summary points at the end. So I'm going to read the passage, and if I can maybe get a little tweak on my microphone, I'm a little tin cannish. Reading from John chapter 4, starting in verse 1, going through verse 42. so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? And to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, and then the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes, and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Last week in chapter 3, we heard of the large crowds that were being drawn to the baptism ministry of Jesus, actually the, the ministry of his disciples. And large crowds in Judea, that close to Jerusalem, were very likely to draw more attention and conflict with the Jewish authorities than Jesus was interested in at the moment. And so he leaves there and returns back to the north, to Galilee. And to get there, he had to pass through Samaria. Samaria was a region in the middle of the country. You can think of Israel as kind of like a tall rectangle, and Samaria is right in the middle of that rectangle. It's the ancient heartland, the homeland of the northern ten tribes of Israel. Seven centuries ago, they were defeated by Assyria and carried off into exile. Only a few Jews remained, and the Assyrians resettled the area with foreigners, and then those foreigners intermarried with the remaining Jews. And so what resulted there in Samaria was a mixed race of people, half Jewish, half other. Racially, culturally, religiously, they were a mix. And that created very large problems with the the full Jews in the north and in the south. Great animosity. They, really, they hated each other. Racial prejudice and religious prejudice. So here they are. They're right in the middle there, right in the middle of the country, and to get from Galilee in the north to Judea in the south, you had to go through Samaria. Makes sense if you look at a map. Right in the middle there, and history tells us that most Jews actually did travel right through there. They kind of just grinned and, and bore it as they went right through. So maybe that's all that verse 4 means. They had to go through. On the other hand, given John's propensity for double meaning in his statements, it's just possible that he means something else. Because while history tells us that most Jews went right through, not all did. There were established routes around Samaria. Jews who wanted to get from the north to the south or vice versa had routes where they crossed the Jordan River and went up and around. And so there there was a way to get around. He didn't literally have to go through Samaria. So some read that verse and see a a geographic comment, and others see some sort of a a divine necessity. kind of goes like this. The Father, seeking out true worshipers, even from Samaritans, had to send Jesus to Samaria. He had to go there to accomplish the Father's will. I think that's a very likely way to read that verse. Either way, God is clearly at work here and Jesus is traveling there. He finds himself at this well and he sits down tired and out comes a woman to him whose world is about to be turned upside down as she walks out looking for water. She's come to draw water in the middle of the day around noon and the fact that she's coming alone so late in the day indicates her status. She's probably a social outcast. would have been Much more common for women to all come together either in the morning or in the evening to draw water. But at this inconvenient time, and especially during summer months, it would have been a very hot time. The fact that she has to come at that time indicates that they have pushed her out of their fellowship, perhaps because of some of the things that we see later in the passage. So she comes to the well alone in the middle of the day, and today she finds Jesus there. And remarkably, he asks her for a drink. It's remarkable on a couple of different levels because he is a Jewish man and she is a Samaritan woman. Notice how the text reminds us of that three times in these verses. John's trying to make really clear that culturally this is way out of line. This conversation is highly unusual. For Jesus to even share a cup with her would have made him ceremonially unclean because she's a Samaritan. And further, the, the gender barrier there was almost never crossed it's very odd that she's talking to him she knows that she tells him why are you talking to me even now we hear that but we don't we don't really feel it because Samaritans don't mean anything to us there's no emotional attachment there so perhaps if we for a second imagine her to be someone different to be of a different sort of person You might kind of feel it a little more, and and also see some more of the majesty of Jesus. Imagine her for a second to be a homosexual AIDS sufferer. That puts a different spin on it. That's more likely to conjure up some images of prejudice, or wariness, or fear of contamination in some segments of our culture, maybe even in some of our minds. Nobody at all thinks this conversation is even supposed to happen except Jesus. We might feel uncomfortable talking to such a person. We might feel that it was kind of odd or that really religious people shouldn't engage with, with the likes of them. He doesn't. He thinks it's totally appropriate. He engages her as soon as she arrives. Can I have a drink? Are you talking to me? You are asking me for a drink? Verse 10, he says, If you knew the gift of God, if you understood the magnitude of the given from God birth, the birth that comes from above, and the change that it can make in a person's life to bring them into the reign of God, here, now, and then one day forever, if you understood that, And if you knew who I was, you would be the one crossing the racial and the cultural and the religious lines, and you'd ask me for a drink, and I'd give you one, living water. She hears that, but she doesn't get it. Common occurrence in this book. People rarely get it in this book. She misunderstands because the phrase living water is aptly chosen to carry two meanings. It's a spiritual and a physical meaning. There's an Old Testament root to this phrase. We'll see that in a little bit. But that Old Testament root is attached to the very tangible physical reality. That that phrase, living water, in the physical realm would refer to fresh running water, good water, as opposed to stagnant water or otherwise bad water. Very common. And that's what she thinks he's offering, fresh water to her, that in some way is better or maybe colder or fresher, tastes better than the water here in Jacob's well. And that sounds a little presumptuous to her, somewhat offensive. Where are you going to get this water? You don't have any ability to get water. You're going to just produce it. And are you better than our father Jacob? This is his well. He dug this well. It was good enough for him. He gave it to us. Who do you think you are? Are you better than Jacob? rhetorical question in her mind the answer in her mind is no father jacob is up here and whoever you are you weary jewish traveler you're not better than him but we catch the irony in that question because we've read chapter one yes he is better than jacob this weary jewish traveler sitting on the edge of the well is the new and better jacob He's the one on whom all the blessings of God have been poured. And he's the one who can pour them out to others. And this new and better Jacob is about to tell her about new and better water. It's water that quenches thirst forever. That wells up inside of a person, springs up to form within him or her actual eternal life. The everlasting reign of the kingdom of God within That's that's the kind of water that he's offering. You're parched, you're fatigued from work, you take a drink of good well water, and your life is reinvigorated. But spiritually speaking, if you're parched and fatigued from striving, looking and searching, and you take a drink of this water, what happens? Eternal life wells up in you. It's the kind of water that he has. But she still doesn't get it. She thinks he's talking about something physical. Her response in verse 15, she wants it so that she doesn't have to come to the well anymore. She thinks he's still on this earthly plane. So he cuts to the chase. And he turns to and surfaces the type of thirst that his water quenches. Go call your husband. turns to her sin and her pain. There's plenty of sin and pain there. Our English translations say, five husbands you've had. So she's at least been married five times had five failed marriages and currently has someone who's not her husband. But it's just possible to read what Jesus actually said, that he's working a a little play on words, and it's just possible that he's actually saying, you've had five men, same word for husband and man, You've had five men, never actually even had any husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. Emphasis on your. That would go a long way towards explaining why the women in town don't like her. That seems to be what the text is pointing at, what Jesus is getting at. Hers has been a lifetime of sin and pain. Poor choices and hard consequences and failed relationships of one sort or another, whether they were marriages or not. Failed relationships again and again and again. She's desperately thirsty. In here, inside, and she's been looking everywhere for all of her life, looking for something to quench that thirst, looking for heart satisfaction. And pleasure and meaning and significance and acceptance and security and safety here on the earthly realm, looking for it everywhere in people, in her case, in the arms of men, in immorality. She keeps looking only to find that again and again, like sand through her fingers, it slips away from her and it's gone. And the thirst remains. Jesus refuses to let her avoid the subject, not out of. Vicious vindictiveness. Oftentimes we deal with other people's sin in a vindictive way. See, you're a sinner. That's not his approach. He's dealing with her sin out of compassion. I'm trying to talk to you, he says, about water that quenches spiritual thirst. And so to be loving to you, I need to show you your thirst. I need to make you aware of the area in your life where you're thirsty. And I need to point out how you keep looking and it keeps failing. It's a compassionate approach that he's taking. That's the nature of his uncomfortably insightful comment in verse 18. And her reaction is to ask him a theological question. Where are we supposed to worship? How does that relate? Most of the time we read that and we say, that is a dodge. It's a whole lot easier to debate theology than to talk about one's sin, isn't it? So she brings in a theological question, and there's probably some of that in there. But based on the fact that Jesus doesn't call her back, but he goes with her down that path, it's just possible that there's also something else. It's not a complete dodge, it's a little bit of a testing the prophet. I see that you are a prophet. After all, him exposing this, this is apparently public knowledge anyway, but it shouldn't be public knowledge to him. He's a total stranger. The fact that he knows it, I see that you are a prophet. Well, what kind of prophet are you? Because I know, she's going to say later, that when Messiah comes, he's going to sort everything out. He knows everything. So let me try one on you. Let me ask you this foundational worship question Where are we supposed to worship prophet? Do you know this one? You guys say, it's plural there, you guys say that we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. We actually worship on a mountain right around here. Which is it? Jesus answers her, well, the Jews are right. Salvation's from the Jews. We worship what we know. You guys actually ignore most of the Old Testament. That's what the Samaritans disregarded large portions of the text. You guys don't know what you're worshiping. We do. Salvation is from the Jews. Salvation history is working down through the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, down through King David, our king, not yours. The Jews are right, but really neither one are right. For now, yes, Jerusalem, but the day is coming, and in fact has now already come. When the Father isn't seeking out worship in this location or in this location, but in this location... That day is coming, and it's here now. I am the one who brings it. I am the Christ. He uses the phrase, actually, I am. That's the name of God. Connects to, in the Old Testament, when God, you read L O R D, all capital letters, the name of God, that's what Jesus said I am the Messiah. That's the climax of the story. He's answered her theological question. He declares who he is. He is the one on whom all the ages have been focused. And then the disciples show up. Great timing, guys. They arrive and an awkward moment ensues. They're all standing around with their lunch bags in hand. And Jesus is doing the unthinkable, talking to this Samaritan woman. They don't want to talk to her and ask her what she wants. They don't want to talk to him and ask him what he's doing. So everybody's kind of standing looking at each other. And so she puts down her water jar and leaves and goes back into the town. And then the disciples apparently think, thank goodness she's gone. Let's get back to our happy, holy little huddle here. Let's eat lunch. But Jesus is still engaged with the Samaritan woman. He knows she's coming back because she left her water jug. She's coming back. Look! She's coming back with other people. They are, they're coming back right now. Can you see them? They're coming back to talk with me about this water and about this life. You guys are just concerned. You're consumed. You're concerned with lunch and look, would you? There's something larger going on here, some greater perspective. Lift up your eyes and see it. That which sustains me is to do my Father's will to carry out his work here. And there's something going on that you must see and you must be a part of. You have to. You usually say, you know, we plant a field and then we wait four months and then we harvest it. That makes sense, but that's not the case now. Right now is the harvest. Look at the fields. Do you see them coming? The harvest is now. He doesn't intend for us to push this analogy too far and think like, like in, in our crops, like a corn crop or a bean crop, that it grows and then it ripens, and so then in like three or four days you harvest the whole thing, all of it, right now. He doesn't mean to say that. He's not saying that everybody is to be harvested right now. The point is that what we usually do is we look out and we notice when the field is ripe, that's harvest time. And what he's saying is, the field's ripe. Right now is harvest time. For centuries we've been saying, when Messiah comes, the harvest begins. When Messiah comes, he brings about the deliverance. When Messiah comes, when Messiah comes, he has come. It's harvest time right now. Get in the game. Look, you can look. We're already paying the reapers. They're already gathering in the crops. Get in the game. It's the point that he's making there. There's a ripe crop even today. Somewhere, somehow, there's harvesting work to be done. Don't delay. Somebody else has sown it. You're going to reap it. You'll reap it. You'll sow it and somebody else will reap it. We're to be involved. We're not to say, that will wait in for the future sometime. Now. It's harvest time. And that's borne out by the fact that when the villagers come back in 39 to 42, many of them believe. The Savior of the world saves many people out of the world. What Jews in Jerusalem, Pharisees, failed to embrace, half-breed outcasts in Samaria embrace with enthusiasm. harvest begins to come in that's the passage it's a dramatic story and a familiar one to a lot of us if you look at it at the big picture level it kind of breaks into two halves there are two scenes to this if you will the first scene is Jesus talking with the woman and the second scene is Jesus talking to the disciples the first scene is Jesus carrying out his evangelistic mission, and the second scene is Jesus talking about his evangelistic mission. The first scene, we're supposed to put ourselves in the shoes of the one who is evangelized, the woman, the one who hears the good news spoken to her. Whether we're Christians or non Christians, we're supposed to be in her shoes and hear of this message. And in the second scene, we're supposed to put ourselves in the shoes of the ones doing the preaching of the message. Two different scenes. Let me summarize the first scene with this phrase drink deeply of Christ. And the second scene, help others do likewise. The two, the two scenes here drink deeply of Christ, help others do likewise. Put them together for the main point. Main point this morning is Jesus was sent to quench human thirst. Jesus was sent to quench human thirst. So partake of and partner with him. Partake of him and partner with him on his mission. Start with the first scene. Drink deeply of Christ. He's surfacing need and he's highlighting himself here as satisfaction. Now, He's come to quench thirst with good living water, and this way of explaining things makes a whole lot of sense in a culture that's familiar with with dry weather. Thirst is very familiar to them. So explaining Messiah's work like that makes a lot of sense. And in some way or another, with with some frequency, God, throughout the Old Testament, seizes upon this image and uses it. It's, It's often slightly different, passage to passage. It's a pretty complex ball if you put them all together comes at it from different angles here and there but the basic point is clear whether in passages talking about cursing and judgment or in passages talking about blessing and promise consistently the Bible pictures people as being thirsty and in need of water and God himself as that water God himself as the water Look, for instance, at, at Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. You could jot that one down and look at it later. We won't be here very long, so you don't have to turn to it. But in that passage, this is a passage of judgment, at the beginning of the book of Jeremiah. God's explaining why he's going to judge Israel. And he's judging them because they've turned away from him and turned to worship other gods. But notice how he puts it. Puts it in a way they can connect with. He says, verse 13, My people have committed two evils. Two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living water. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Two evils there. People need water to sustain life. They're desperate for it. And it's as if there's a spring right here, a spring, a fountain of good, fresh water, plentiful, able to supply all that they need. But they amazingly say... No thanks, I think instead we'll go over here, we'll ignore that fountain and we'll go over here and with our own hands we're going to carve out a huge cistern, which is like a big pool or a tank. And then we'll go somewhere else and get a whole bunch of water and bring it and put it in this cistern and that's what we'll use to satisfy our needs. But what they find eventually is that cistern water is not nearly as fresh as spring water and eventually it goes stagnant. And furthermore, this cistern is actually broken and so it doesn't even hold water, the water runs right out of it. They end up thirsty again, unable to meet their needs. It's the point he's making there in that passage. And in texts like that, other passages like it, whether other passages of judgment or of promise, making this metaphor, God's making this metaphor really clear. That's what is in the back of Jesus' mind here. People need God. People are, are made to need God, like we're made to need water. Without God-drenched hearts, people shrivel up and wither away inside. We chase after all kinds of other things that try to satisfy that thirst, but in the end they all fail and leave us more thirsty. That's the tragedy of the human condition. We turn away from that which would satisfy us, so we end up unsatisfied, and it invites the judgment of God on us for rejecting Him. It's tragedy. It's a number of places in the Old Testament. But the prophets of the Old Testament also look forward to a great and glorious future day, to a time that's coming, the great day of the Lord, when one day he would fix all of that and he would finally fully be the satisfaction of his people. He'd quench all of their thirst and the Lord would call out, Come, everyone who thirsts, come, Come to the waters, and he who has no money, buy and eat. It's in Isaiah. There was going to be a day in the future when God would call out, come without money and get what you need. Come to the waters. Come to me. When was that day to be fulfilled? When, finally, when fully was that day to be fulfilled? Well, that day comes finally and fully at the very end. We still look forward to what the book of Revelation describes when a multitude that no one can number from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation will be gathered together around the throne of God, sheltered by his presence. Revelation 7 And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in their midst will be their shepherd and He will guide them to springs of living waters and God will wipe away every tear. That day is still coming. The Lamb in our midst, a shepherd that leads us to the spring of water that quenches every thirst forever. No longer any thirst. The sun does not beat down on us. You see the figurative language there. God, the satisfaction of our souls, us connected to Him by the Lamb in our midst. That day in its fullness is still to come. It's it's in the future. But it's already here. That day has dawned. It's like we're in the dawn of the day. We're not in the full sunlight of the day, but we're in the dawn of the day. That's what Jesus is talking about back in John 4. Verses 21 and 23. He uses the word hour there, but it's the same idea. That hour is coming and is now come. It's already here. The Lamb, who is the shepherd of the people, has already begun to lead people to the water. To him who is water for us, to God. One day in the future, that will well up and become a fountain that leads to everlasting, eternal life and the end of all thirst. It's already begun, even now. And you don't find that spring of water in Jerusalem or on a mountain somewhere. You find it in Christ. In here, He is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. That's how we connect to God. In spirit and in truth. In Christ Christ. Talked about this before, who is the new temple? He's the place where we meet God. Coming to Him is how we get connected to the fountain. Look and behold the Lamb, who is the shepherd, sitting right here on the edge of a well. If you knew who he was, you'd ask him, and he'd give you this water. It's water that'll quench your thirst forever. This call, it's his invitation to you. Here is where you meet God who quenches all your thirst. And that's all somewhat intricate. If you take in all that I was just talking about and you compare the Old Testament to the book of Revelation and how that's happened now already and you think about fountains and how Jesus connects us to the fountain and how God is the fountain. He's also a river and Jesus is not only the one who connects us to the fountain but he's also the temple. Boy, you can just kind of get going like this with all that. And the danger is As I talk about that, I'll either lose you and you'll give up or I'll intrigue you and you'll zero in on that and you'll miss the point. This passage does not just exist to teach us some kind of complicated theology, teach us about some metaphors or some some typology. It doesn't exist just for that. It exists to surface in you the issue of spiritual thirst and to call you to Christ for quenching come and drink deeply of Christ that's the point here but you won't reckon, but you won't reckon that to be a valuable thing to be a significant point until you recognize your spiritual thirst The Samaritan woman didn't She didn't figure out what Jesus was talking about until he flicked on the light in her soul and showed her some of herself, showed her her life of searching, her failure, and only then did it make sense that he was offering water that met that thirst. So do you see spiritual thirst in your life? God give grace to you this morning to see some of yourself. Look at your life. Christians and non-Christians alike, we're, we're both in the same boat right now. Christians have some resource. We have access to this water, but we're prone to turn away from it. And we still thirst here now. People who are not yet Christians, they thirst also. So whoever you are this morning, both of us, both Both non Christians and Christians alike, stop and think about yourself. Look at yourself. Are you thirsty? Do you see thirst? What would Jesus shine his light onto and illumine in your life? That indicates your searching and your loss and your pain. Where you've missed and keep missing. You're looking for something that you can't find. Look at the aches and the pains. On the other hand, also look at at your sin. What you recognize already to be sin in your life. Because sin is not just a rejection of God, it's also a seeking after something. Sometimes even seeking after a good thing, but in the wrong place, in the wrong way. I can't be too specific here because I don't know you, and I don't know exactly what you're dealing with, but For an example, we need to look no further than the Samaritan woman. You can look at her, and you can see in her sexual sin, her likely desire to find something or some things along the lines of heart rest and comfort, peace and security and acceptance and approval. Maybe that gets close to you, either in actual sexual sin or pornography or in other ways that you might live for the approval and acceptance of people. On the other hand, maybe you're just constantly looking for joy and happiness. And you look for it in a never-ending stream of games and sports and hobbies and television and then back again when all those things fail to satisfy. Heart rest and comfort and acceptance and joy and pleasure are not wrong. They are God-given desires. Where we look for them is the key. Where we look for them to be answered is the key. He's the satisfaction of our hearts. He's the only satisfaction of our hearts, ultimately. We're to look to have those thirst quenched in Him. As the saint said, God has made us for Himself and our hearts are restless until they find their home in Him. We use this language. God has made us for Himself and our hearts are thirsty until they're quenched by Him. Whatever way you desire, whatever way you long, wherever you feel the pain and the hurt of of missing, of losing, of not finding, realize that at that point, that's where Jesus aims to be the thirst-quenching water, to connect you to God. Drink deeply of Him. Come to Him and embrace Him the main point of the first scene there. He's talking to the Samaritan woman. The second scene of the passage forms the basis for our second point. I'll be a little more brief here. We are to drink deeply of Christ and secondly, we are to help others do likewise. That, catch, that captures the, the turn of, of the emphasis in this passage. first part focuses on his mission and the second part focuses on the importance that Jesus attaches to that mission and the importance that we are to attach to being a part of that mission. Jesus has been sent, verse 34. We've already talked about that theme before. And here it is again, the sent one idea. He has been sent by God for a purpose. And this purpose, it, it's what he's completely focused on. He's focused on carrying out this assigned mission. It's what feeds him. Catch catch what he's saying? That we human beings, we order our lives around meals. We plan our days, we plan meetings, we plan activities so as to line them up with where the meals are in our schedule. And we rarely miss one. Now, of course, we can sometimes. Sometimes you can be busy doing something or there are extreme cases where where we don't stop to eat. I mean, you could think of a battle, for instance. Armies rarely call time out for lunch during a battle. But generally speaking, we don't miss meals. We are thoroughly committed to regular eating. And Jesus is thoroughly committed to regularly accomplishing the work for which he is sent. And here's the kicker. If you're a Christian, you've been sent on the same work. You've been sent on the same mission. He expects us to be thoroughly committed to the regular accomplishment of His work. We too are sent ones. That's also in this text, and it's throughout, and it's throughout this book. Lift up your eyes and look around and see people everywhere. Everywhere. Some of them look like, like Samaritan women. Some of them look like Jewish Pharisees. All of them are equally lost and equally thirsty and equally need Jesus. And we are still here in this fallen world in large part because he has sent us here and assigned us a job of helping connect them to water that is satisfying to their thirst. We are here as his ambassadors to proclaim a message of glorious thirst quenching. It is our job. And that time is now. It is not four months from now or four years from now. Now, I'm not saying that everyone's going to be saved. I'm not saying everyone's going to be saved today. Jesus doesn't mean that. But what he means is that we are all ready to be about the work of the harvest. It won't wait until the kids are all grown up. It won't. Until I have more time. Or until I've perfected my evangelistic techniques, or until things lighten up at work, or until I retire, or until I die. It won't wait. It's now. now of course, all those factors, young children at home, the, the nature of your job, your age, your health, all of those factors can and should dramatically affect how you go about this harvest work. But none of them are a hall pass to get out of it. All of us are to be about this. We simply cannot say, I follow Christ who came to seek and save the lost. I just don't do what he does. He sends me and I say no thanks, but I still follow him. can't say that. It's not permitted. We have got to get this. I cringe about what I have heard at different times our reputation as a church to be. E.V. Free is a teaching church, not an outreach church. Oh, that makes me cringe. That cannot be. It cannot be. If we are to be an honest-to-goodness teaching church, we have to be an outreach church. Jesus is teaching outreach. Lift up your eyes and see. What else could he possibly be talking about? We have to get this as a church and as individuals. The Samaritan woman does get it. This she gets. How ironic. She has a hard time understanding all the facts, but she still manages to participate in Jesus' mission. She goes and she pulls the whole town out to come see him. How ironic. She does that while we who understand all of the facts are very often tardy in our embracing of his harvest mission. How do we fix this situation? Well, repentance would be a good start. Repentance would be a good start. And then I think prayer for vision, vision of the lost, to lift up our eyes and see them. And I think vision also for the magnitude of just how glorious Christ is, of how thirst-quenching He is. See, I notice something as I read through the Gospels. Again and again, there's, there's a pattern that gets established. Jesus, when he actually touches someone and changes them and tells them to not tell other people, they tell other people anyway. That happens more than once. They have encountered something that met them in here. The Samaritan woman gets just a taste. He might just be the water that quenches my soul. I better tell everybody I know, even the people who think, really little of me. I need to tell them it is there is some I might have just touched something marvelous. I better tell other people. I see that happen again and again and I wonder if that says something about us. And if that calls us back around to the first point. Would you please come and drink deeply of Christ? And pray that God would impress upon you how stunning He is. How marvelous He is. Drink deeply of Him and then help others to do likewise. Christ was sent to quench human thirst. Partake of Him and partner with Him.
0: It will be to your joy if you do. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah.